Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Ninth of July, Friday. The air is oppressive and sticky. At this hour, only jackdaws have the energy to yap. Chance meeting with a stranger. The water is cool while we talk. He speaks with not just his voice, but his face and body. I try to follow the coiled labyrinth of his thoughts. What strange creatures we are. We people our cosmos with such gods and monsters we can scarce tell them apart. A sliver of new moon has just dipped below the horizon and a thin mist of gnats hang in the still night air. This is the narrowboat 506812, among the reeds and still waters, on a soft and balmy July night, talking to you wherever you are. I'm glad you're here. It's good to share nights like these. The colourful kaleidoscope of the seasons continues to slowly turn, and as the summer grows older, the greens of the leaves deepen. Small green lantern globes decorate the hedgerows. They're just a few months back, snowed petals along the towpath. And soon they'll blush red and smoulder and blaze like autumn fire for harvest time. Hips, haws, elder and blackberry. This is the time for the noble thistle and teasel, and the russet rusting sorrels. The thick vegetation beneath the hedges is now laced with tunnels and pathways, and Penny pauses at each one to check who's come and who's gone. And the hedgerows and the skies are a little quieter now. The dawn chorus is not quite so vibrant. That first flush of spring's promise has dissipated. It'll return with the autumn. And the middle parts of the day fall strangely silent. These are the long days for birds. Now with juveniles and new broods to hatch, birds too need their rest and cherish the siesta. And so, as the sun sweeps over its daily zenith, quietness falls. And the hum of insects and the lazy calls of dove and wood pigeon create a dreamy symphony of summer afternoons. The ducklings continue to grow. It's getting harder to track them now, which is only right. And it's only their stumpier wings that mark them out. But as the nights lengthen, so do their wings. And the swans continue to stay with us each day. 
and their signet is growing. Its neck is increasingly lengthening. Long preening sessions together leave messy drifts of swan feathers on the bank. Each day they come to the duck hatch for food, and in the warm weather we leave it open. And often a cheeky head will suddenly thrust itself into the cabin as we pass, trying to grab our sleeve or arm. I love their insistence and cheeky bravado. And speaking of which, I'm a, a bit embarrassed as I posted on social media a playful comment that many people didn't know that the correct collective noun for swans was a cheekiness of swans. However, I completely forgot that most people who would read those posts only knew me from here and perhaps not so acquainted my sense of humour. And I think a few people took it as fact. And actually, there doesn't seem to be much agreement about what the collective noun for swans are. In fact, there's, there's a number of them. <laughs> you can hear some background noise. Pen has just woken up and found an old bone to chew on. Um, but getting back to swans and collective nouns, these are some that I've come across. A bank, and that's when they're on the land. Gaggle, bevy, herd, era. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's spelt E-Y-R-A-R. I've never come across that before. Gargle, whiteness, a glide, and that's when they're swimming. A wedge, and that's when they're flying in V formation. A ballet, a drift when on water, and a lamentation. So probably a cheekiness of swans would fit in quite nicely there. And as a couple of you have said on Twitter and Facebook, actually a cheekiness of swans is quite apt, particularly in the light of uh, our ones. And so if it is adopted, then, well, that's not so bad, is it? Eh? But anyway, next time I post a rather playful or cheeky comment, I'll make sure that I put plenty of emojis alongside it to, uh, to indicate that I'm not being serious. Well, in other news, for the next three weeks, I'm going to be off air, so to speak, as Donna, Penny and I are going to be on our off-grid, off-broadband holiday break. The discovered these about six or perhaps even seven years ago now when we found a beautiful little shepherd's hut that is situated in its own piece of woodland on the side of the Preseli Hills in, in Wales. And alongside it is a little mountain stream that flows which you can paddle in and bathe and play being an explorer with the dog. And the thing about it was that it had no internet or even mobile signal. Um, we loved it and realised how important it was. It's not that we were ever, and particularly then, great users of mobiles and things, but just the fact of being able to say to people, look, we are going to be out of contact, gave us a, a sense of freedom and allowed us to just really switch off. And this year, more than ever, we just felt that need to get away and switch off and so we are going to just turn right at the first junction and 
see where we end up. As we are implementing a no broadband, no mobile policy, there won't be any nighttime on still waters for the next three weeks. However, I am pre-recording a few little episodes, which are obviously going to have to be different. I'm not going to be able to do the weather log or the journal entry and things like that. So what I've decided to do is just put together some readings from some of the really wonderful literature on canals and canal life that I find interesting and I think that you might find interesting and you might enjoy. And so I'm pre-recording them and they will be uploaded hopefully every Sunday as normal. That's if I get the scheduling sorted out properly. And there won't be any social media posts to indicate that they're up. But if you listen to these podcasts through your podcast provider, then you should get notifications that way or see that they are up. So I'm not going to be around for the next three weeks, but there will be something on Nighttime on Stillwaters. It's been great to hear from so many of you this past week, and I've been particularly enjoying the updates from our old friend Arlene Kettering Weiser from Seattle, who is now California. And I hope it's not too hot there. I hear it's getting really, really warm over there. And uh, they're all the, the incredible photographs that you've been taking, Arlene, and particularly of the raccoons. And I, I am a little bit obsessed by them. They, they look wonderful. But I think you're absolutely right. We've got enough problems here with uh, things attacking the swans without introducing raccoons into the United Kingdom. And uh, some beautiful mule deer. And I've not come across mule deer before. And Darlene was hoping that this year they would have some more offspring. Uh, but so far, it doesn't seem to be happening. But uh, she said also says that she's not too surprised as they had quite a few uh, last year. Also, it's lovely to hear again from Carol Knight Ennis. And she was particularly taken with this idea of boats having gardens on them. And that was prompted by a photograph that I posted on social media of the herbs and salad leaves that Donna had harvested from our containers. And yes, lots of boats have plants and little gardens on them. If you just walk along the canal, you will find lots of wonderful boat gardens and containers perched, sometimes precariously, everywhere. And uh, quite a few people uh, use old pallets to make quite big container gardens on their roofs. And the only problem with that is, is that if they're up there for a long time, it can actually then end up damaging the roof. Or because so many boats are now installing solar panels on their roofs, there's not the room to be able to facilitate a large container up there. And I know of at least a couple of boats that run successful seed selling businesses actually from their boats and sending them out in the in the spring. And so although it may appear a bit surprising, there's quite a lot of association between boats and boaters and gardens. And it's amazing what a little bit of inventiveness and creativeness can do in creating your own little mini garden on a boat. 
And yes, Carol, I totally agree that probably could be an, an, an entirely new podcast series on its own. And over on Twitter, thank you to all the usual suspects for all your comments and feedback and input and warm words. Thank you for that. And thanks to Wayne and Amanda and, of course, Bella and to Sharon and Stephen Show and um, NB Stowaways. And I am very grateful to those of you who have been recommending the podcast and especially Vanessa, thank you so much from the uh, Mindful Narrowboat vlog and Stephen Joe from the Narrowboat Blue Phoenix. Uh, I really do appreciate your, your words there and thank you. It was terrific to have so much feedback about last week's reference to the swans' loss of four of their five signets and there's some really interesting and insightful comments about how we process and respond to something like this. And also how they themselves process it. Do they feel loss? Do they feel grief and sadness? And this conversation, as quite often conversations like this do then draws on wider issues of our relationship and attitude to non-human life and really how we relate to the environment and the landscape that we find ourselves in. And this conversation really coincided with another post on Twitter that very much relates to this issue and is an incredibly powerful poem by Steve May from The Narrow Boat Blue Phoenix. And its response in part to one of our earlier podcast episodes on the heron, the, the clerical heron. And Steve augmented his poem with a beautiful and I found really haunting video that he took of a heron through the window of his boat as the rain streamed down on the outside of the glass. And that created a really evocative, dreamlike, and as I say, haunting image that seemed to reflect a lot of those thoughts that he expressed in that poem. That's essentially about boundaries between us and the natural world whilst at the same time trying to find ways to break through that and to take away that rain-streaked glass and make contact. And in many ways, what Steve is expressing in that poem and video are thoughts which have been running through my mind for some time. And, and unfortunately, I can't show the video here, but I'll post a link to it in the program notes below. What I find really interesting and actually encouraging is the change that we are experiencing in the way in which we view the natural environment. Whilst for most of modern history, by which I mean from the Enlightenment onwards, 
the boundaries between human and non-human have been fixed and pretty much unbending. Now, these boundaries are now being once more re-examined, scientifically, philosophically, theologically, and even culturally. This re-examination is partly from the necessity of the realisation of the damage our existing modes of thought have caused, and a growing sense of unease with our disconnection with nature and how it is being exploited. And once again, it seems that we are becoming open to the depths of those encounters that we have with non-human life and all that they may tell us. Even if we find that the message that they give finds us in some ways wanting. And this, this turn, quite often referred to as the animal turn, is more than just escapist sentimentality of peopling the field and woods with characters of Beatrix Potter and Wind in the Willows. It's something much deeper, much more honest than that. And I think that's really what struck me so forcibly about Steve May's poem. Here we have an encounter between equals, each meeting the other on their own terms and retaining their own individual sense of self, if we can use those terms so loosely. It's an encounter between two beings that exist on the same earth, a point of contact. Now, it may be a blind contact, but it's contact nonetheless. Steve's given me permission to, to read it, and you'll see what I mean. The poem is called Majestic Heron, and it's by Steve May from The Narrowboat Blue Phoenix. The heron standing by, been there hours now on one leg, again, tolerating the rain, and still, motionless, sublime, and sits there like a hunched old man, still, yet powerful, because it can. We look each other eye to eye. I marvel why, despite the rainfall, it stays motionless, accepting me, all. And for some time we share our understanding, a glance, a look from where we're standing, a moment of discovery, a shared space since landing, exchanging glances. We now have found some common ground. Thank you for being around. The philosopher and Jewish scholar Martin Buber talks about the need to live relationships as I-thou or I-you and not I-it. The I-it relationship is based on viewing the other person 
in terms of their usefulness or not to us. Relationships are therefore constructed on the basis of their utility. When the person has become essentially dehumanized or objectified as a tool to be used, to be manipulated, to, to get what we want. And this is quite often based on assumptions and labels that we don't see past to the human beyond. Conversely, the I-thou relationship or the I-you relationship looks beyond the person as an it and meets them, encounters them as a fully alive, complex, perhaps even contradictory bundle of yous. And we don't have to look far in our culture to see groups and individuals who are labelled, stigmatised, categorised, and we encounter them so easily in the I-it frame. And they, whoever they are, are like the cow, the pig, the heron. They are not the us. They are not the thou. And Buber's challenge was to demand that we begin again to see and encounter individuals and groups, not as its, but as thou's, so that the encounter will be create a we, an us, rather than a resource to be exploited. While Bupa's main focus for I-thou, I-it relationships, is between humans, there's an increasing concentration now on how we should be relating to non-humans. And we can see that in Steve's poem. And Steve's poem, in a sense, is breaking through that I-it to create and establish an I-thou moment or an I-thou event with the heron. That this is a shared space, that this is a shared encounter that is in some way meaningful to him and to the heron. And because of that, it makes it precious. And because of it, that the heron is no longer an it, an object, but is a being in its own right. And we see this in the, the animal turn and how we relate to the world around us. And yet also Steve's poem goes even deeper than that. And hits the problem that we today are grappling with. Whilst it meets the heron as an equal, it cannot be an I-thou, because the heron is not and never will be an us. It's not human. And just as the swan tapping on the duck hatch can never be a we, because to view the heron in those terms is to essentially deheron it, to force a human soul or mind or understanding into its sleek and beaky frame. A truly authentic encounter and meaningful encounter for both parties needs to acknowledge that sense of difference. And here we run into the problems of language, but also the problems of anthropomorphism, of viewing 
non-humans in terms of specifically humans. The problem with anthropomorphism and anthropomorphic empathy, in other words, of trying to make contact with the human in the non-human, is that it still divorces the animal from its ecological universe. Now, it has lots of benefits because we begin to start to think about the non-human as a being in its own right, not just a thing to be used. And it's probably the where we we quite often start in our encounters with animals and birds of finding points of contact that we can relate to. We're doing it all the time with our pets, but with our pets, we are also become aware that even though they may express emotions and personalities, that even still they remain dog or cat. And that's what makes that relationship special. The downside of this type of understanding of non-humans is that it denies the uniqueness and individuality of that animal or that species. It still humanizes, it it tames, it colonizes, it brings that animal under human control. It's still part of that dominion mindset that we have, this superiority that in order to understand something, it has to be like us on our terms. And so therefore, it comes under the purview of the human. And this is where we get the mink's hunger becoming a moral offence. The way that magpies and jackdaws raid songbirds' nests for their eggs becomes a, an ethical outrage. And this is why the Cistercian monk, Thomas Merton, argued that we need to let animals be animals, to live outside our frames of reference, not in order to view them from a position of superiority or the I-it relationship, but to allow them the freedom of being living beings with whom we share the planet. And similarly, Zoologist and ethologist Franz de Waal, who researched so much on the emotions and cognition of animals, argues in his own way the same, that animals, we need to understand animals as animals. And so both monk and scientist acknowledge that gulf of our knowing that separates human from non-human. Jacques Derrida is possibly the first modern philosopher to really seriously explore this issue in a fascinating and seminal study that involved his cat. And there is a lot in Steve's poem that reminds me of Derrida and his encounter with a cat, and particularly one very famous now encounter. Derrida describes how one day he is in his bathroom naked and he suddenly becomes aware that his cat is watching him. 
And what then follows is an analysis and reflection of the thoughts that he has during this encounter. And what is it that makes him feel so uncomfortable about that unblinking stare that makes him feel more naked than the nakedness of his not wearing of any clothes, that he is so aware that he's in the presence of a living, thinking being, but one that is so clearly and unnervingly in this encounter, unhuman. I think that most of us who at least have pets uh, can relate to this encounter. And it can be unnerving, but it also can be deeply And that's what I get from Steve's poem. Uh, I love it when I get that strange connection with a rook. There is something there that I can't articulate, but is powerful and meaningful to me. And I think Derrida is finding that as wonderful as it would be, the animal gaze informs us that in this respect, Booper's I thou relationship breaks down. And that is because we are moving to places beyond the sphere and purview of language, of being able to articulate what is happening. To understand, to, to make these connections requires us to dive down under the ocean where there is no language. And perhaps that's why poetry become so much more important in helping us to understand and make sense of these really important connections. And it allows us to have meaningful contact with, say, a heron, but allows that heron to keep its heronness, to keep its integrity as a being on its own terms without the human manipulating it into something which it is not. And that's what I love about Steve's poem. Heron and human find a point of contact. It's meaningful on some perhaps different levels. Each perhaps gains something from it but each retains their essence and remains true to themselves, but perhaps a richer and a truer self because of that encounter. And for some time, we share our understanding, a glance, a look, from where we're standing, a moment of discovery, a shared space, since landing, exchanging glances, we now have found some common ground. Thank you for being around. And thank you, Steve, for sharing this. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful peaceful and refreshing night. Good night. Temperature outside, 15.2 degrees. Inside, 
18 degrees. Humidity 68%. Dew point 12 degrees. Wind direction south southwest. Wind strength 4 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1014.6 rising. Cloud cover 9%. Cloud ceiling none. Precipitation 0.51 millimeters. Moon phase 0.8% Waxing crescent Day length 16 hours 27 minutes Sunset 21.25 Sky casting 4.59